Please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 15. We will be beginning the fifth vision today as we also wrap up the fourth vision. And um, John is moving from one vision to another as we pick up today in Revelation 15, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Let us pray. God of justice and truth, your psalmist has asked that his words and thoughts would be pleasing to you. He affirmed that you had given your word to work in him to daily conform his words and thoughts to you. You have given us this same word and we now open it to hear from you so that our words and thoughts would be pleasing, would be acceptable to you, O God, our Redeemer. Guide us in the study of this passage so that we may be changed and transformed more and more into your likeness. In Jesus' name, amen. In the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 10, Paul gives a brief summary of the wilderness wanderings of Israel during the Exodus. He talks of the Israelites coming through the Red Sea victorious and struggling with idolatry and grumbling as they were led through the desert to the promised land. Paul then says that these things were written down and passed on to the church so that we would not fall into the same sins and idolatries that Israel fell into. The life of, a Christ, of the Christian is a life that moves from slavery to Satan and to sin to a life of eternal bliss in the promised land of God's presence. In that life, we are tempted to worshly, earthly, worship earthly created things. We are tempted to idolatry. We are tempted to show our lack of faith and contentment in grumbling about the things and events that God brings to you and to me. And at times we stumble or run headlong into these sins and temptations. Paul's reference to the Exodus is a warning to remain faithful to the truth that God has given to us and obedient in the face of temptation. John adds to Paul's view of the Exodus event in the book of Revelation to show that God's work in this world and in this church leads to victory for those who are faithful and those who are obedient. As we considered the vision of the seven trumpets, we saw that the horrors unleashed were related to the plagues that God sent upon Egypt to show his sovereignty and power over the nation and the gods of Egypt. And this next vision, the vision of the seven bowls, will pull once again from that Exodus plague imagery, imagery as God pours his wrath, his judgment out upon the wicked of this world. But in today's passage, as John both introduces us to the next vision and wraps up the previous vision, John will focus on one specific event in the Exodus, the gathering of God's people 
on the wilderness side of the Red Sea. As we consider this event and how it applies to the Christians in the new heavens and the new earth, we will see God's people to be risen and victorious, and we will see them engaging in victorious worship. First, we see God's people risen and victorious. Our passage today opens with John saying that he saw another great and marvelous sign. The first time he talked about a great and marvelous sign was in chapter 12, verse 1, as he introduced the vision of the war between the church and the dragon. Here we see the word great to be a sign that means large or or expansive as he saw it. And marvelous is a word that means astonishing as John sees not only the previous vision, but he sees this next vision. It it is a vision that that covers a vast expanse and it's a vision that astonishes him in its scope, in its breadth, in the power of the wrath of God that is poured out upon sinful humanity. And we'll pick this vision up in its fullness in verse 5, but, but before that we have interlocked with the, inter, with the introduction to this next vision, we have mingled with it the conclusion to the last vision. We've seen this already in the transition of, from the vision of the seals to the vision of the trumpets, and we've seen it with the transition from the vision, uh, or we see it here again in this particular vision as, as John mixes the two together. And this reminds us, this uh, affirms for us once again that this is a cycle or a spiral of visions that John sees covering the same uh, time period in history, covering the same acts of God in history, the history of the church from the ascension of Christ until his return in an ever-increasing spiral of intensity, sometimes focusing on different aspects of either world history or church history. This introduction to the fifth vision says that it's the last because God's wrath is completed or fulfilled. Now we know it's not the absolute last vision that John sees because he sees the vision of Christ victorious over the gathered nations beginning with uh, the, the great whore of Babylon. And then we see the vision of the new heavens and the new earth. But this is the last vision in the sense of Out of the seven visions, there are three visions that focus on a series of seven specific things. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and now seven bowls. And so that pattern will be broken as we focus in on both the ultimate defeat of Satan and his minions and the new heavens and the new earth. But before that, we need to wrap up the vision that was previous. And John does that with this picture of Israel or the people of God pictured standing next to the sea of glass mingled with fire. This reminds us to go back to the beginning of the previous vision in Revelation chapter 12. We were introduced to the dragon and his attempts to destroy the church through the employment of pagan kingdoms of this world, the false religions of this world, and the economic pressures of this world. And that vision ended in in Revelation 14 with a reminder that God's people will be gathered safely to his presence and that the followers of the dragon would be reaped for judgment. But what happens to the people of God once they are gathered for safety? 
Well, they are risen and they are victorious. They are risen because they are standing beside the sea. The last time we saw the crystal sea was in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. God's throne is placed above the crystal sea and Jesus is standing next to the crystal sea as the lamb who was slain and yet is risen, is risen again. It's just as Jesus stands beside the sea, his people stand beside the sea with him as well. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about Jesus being the first fruits of the resurrection. That because Jesus was resurrected, those who have placed their faith in him can know that they will be resurrected as well. And John affirms this for us as the people of God, those saints who had been gathered safe and secure into the presence of God are standing resurrected beside the sea. They are victorious as they stand beside the sea or they have overcome as the word victorious in our text today is the same word for overcome in the first two or three chapters of the book of Revelation. And in the lamb who has overcome the world, they have been faithful to the truth that they were given and faithful to be obedient in their lives. And so they stand there victorious um, with God the people of God gathered to his glorious presence stand with him, both resurrected and victorious. From an earthly perspective, this looks like a defeat because oftentimes the church is gathered to God through the loss of life, whether it's the natural loss of life or the loss of life that comes through persecution. The church on the earth oftentimes looks defeated as governments and false religions bring persecution to the church. The church is cursed. The church is made fun of. The church is persecuted. And in some cases, its influence dwindles to nothing. And yet in the midst of this cursing, in the midst of this derision and reviling, the church is called to be faithful to the truth that God has given to it and to be obedient to the holiness that God has called the church to be faithful to. That means you and I, brothers and sisters, when we speak of the church, we speak of the individuals within the church. That means you and I have been called to faithfully proclaim the gospel message to a world that hates it. And we have been called to be obedient in a world that is full of darkness. In our Wednesday night Bible study, we were looking at Philippians uh, chapter 2, verses 12 and following and in that, uh, Paul calls the Philippian Christians to work out their salvation, to work hard to work out their salvation as they work it out in fear and trembling. Fear and trembling is a reminder that, that we are incapable of working it out ourselves. And yet God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, gives us the ability to take the next step in working out our salvation, that pursuit of holiness that we are called to. One is so that one reason that we do that is so that we will be holy as God is holy. And Paul adds another reason that we do that is so that we might shine like stars in a sin darkened world. When you shine like a star in the darkness, you draw people to you. Sometimes you draw people to you who want to know the source of the light. Where can they find the peace of the light in the darkness of the world? Other times you draw people to you who are seeking to have the darkness overcome the light. And they will tempt you to give up on God's law. They will tempt you to say, 
well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set aside this command so that maybe I can have acceptance by my friends or, or maybe I can have acceptance in the world. But we are called to be victorious through faithful obedience and faithful proclamation of the truth in a world that hates those two things. And that is where the overcoming occurs. That is where the victory is found because even if the world wins and seemingly destroys the church. The worst the Christian can expect is heaven and the glories of the new heavens and the new earth. And so regardless of whatever victory the earth thinks that it has, the world thinks that it has, it is the people of God who stands risen and victorious beside the sea, beside the throne of God in the presence of the Lamb. Not only is the church risen and the victorious, the church engages in victorious worship. We have this song introduced to us uh, there near the, the latter half of verse 2 and on into verse 3 and 4. They are, they are victorious, and as they are victorious, they are holding those harps, those instruments of victory that has been given to them by God. Once again, we saw the harps in Revelation 5 and Revelation 7 as the elders around the throne representing the church of God are holding their harps and singing this new song of Jesus' redemption. And as they hold the harps, as they stand there on the seashore, they sing a song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. This scene is reminiscent of the scene in Exodus 15. The people of God have been expelled from Egypt after the ten plagues. And as they are approaching the Red Sea, they find themselves between a rock and an ocean. As the army of Egypt is following behind them, the Egyptians have changed their mind and they have decided that they are going to come and take retribution on the Israelites for everything that happened to them because of their own sin. At this point, God provides a dry path through the sea for the Israelites. And as the Egyptians try to follow on this dry path, the, the waters surge back in and the Egyptian army is destroyed. The nation of Israel gathers on the far shore of the sea and offers a song of praise, a song of worship to God, not only for the victory that he has given that day, but the promise of the victories to come. The song says, we worship you, we praise you for the victory over the Egyptians today, and we worship and praise you for the victory over the other nations of Canaan that you will give us in the future. And this is the scene that shapes this account in John's vision. The risen victorious people of God gather with their God and Savior on the shore of the crystal sea. And they offer a song of worship to God and to the Lamb. The song is called the Song of Moses, the Sermon of God, and the Song of the Lamb. There are two songs in the Old Testament called the Song of Moses. One is the one we've referenced in Exodus 15. The other is found in Deuteronomy 32, where Moses teaches the Israelites a song that they are to teach their kid. And it begins as a very depressing song. It's a song reminding the Israelites that all the law that God has given them, all the faithfulness that he has called them to, they will abandon and turn their back on. And God will send them into exile for it. But it wraps up with a reminder to say that God will restore them when they repent. And both songs are appropriate for the victorious people of God. 
We praise God for the victory. But we are also to be reminded that there will be times where you and I will turn our back on Jesus, on God, on on being faithful to his gospel, on being obedient to him. And he will discipline us because he loves us. And yet he will also restore us when we repent. These are the song of Moses. What about the song of the Lamb? Well, it has been spoken of previously in Revelation. It's called a new song in Revelation 5, and it focuses on the redemption and salvation that comes to God's people through the work of Jesus. We talk about signs of victory that look like signs of defeat. Think of the cross. Our redemption came through the cross. The cross from earthly terms is a symbol of the the worst of the worst of criminals. It's a symbol of humiliation and dehumanization. And yet it is the sign of Jesus' victory over sin and death and Satan. And God's people lift up their voices in worship as they consider the truth that God has been victorious over sin, over death, over Satan. And that victory brings us redemption and reconciliation with God. And then John introduces us to yet another song in the book of Revelation. We talk about Psalms being the songbook for the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God. But Revelation is almost as much a songbook for the people of God as the people of God victoriously lift their voices in song, praising God for his redemptive works, praising God for his works of judgment. Not because we rejoice in people being judged, but because we rejoice that God is faithful to his promises and that he has allowed judgment to pass over you and I through the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, when life is tough, when life is dangerous, when life is scary, do you sing? It's a a sign of the victory that God has given It's a sign of the joy that will come when the darkness of this world breaks forth in the glorious morning of God's new mercies. We are and should be a singing people and not just on Sunday morning. Songs praising God for his victory, praising God for his redemption, praising God for his mercy even in the dark valleys of life should flow from the mouths of God's people. John gives us and talks to us about this song, and the song begins with a focus on God and his deeds. It says, Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Now this is pulled from that passage in Jeremiah that we read earlier, so it would probably be more appropriate as Some of the uh, variant readings say to say that it's king of the nations there, especially as we see the context of the rest of the psalm. Great and marvelous are your deeds. This reminds us of Psalm 111 that talks about God's great and marvelous deeds and, and joy coming to those who study and delight in God's work. But it also takes us right back to verse one of this passage. Where John said, I saw in heaven a great and marvelous sign. Why are these signs great and marvelous in the book of Revelation? Because they are an account of the great and marvelous God who does great and marvelous things in this world. 
They are not great and marvelous merely because they are terrific and, 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 and vast and scary at times. That's not why they are great and marvelous. They are great and marvelous because they reflect God's work in this world. They are also just and true. A reference to Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, that second psalm of Moses. God acts justly on behalf of his people and his works are trustworthy and reliable. We struggle with this truth, you and I do at times. Life doesn't always seem to look like God is acting justly on behalf of his people. We lose friends, we lose family. We lose money, we lose credibility in the world. We, we lose uh, what we think, what we grasp in our sanity at times as we look around the world. But, but oftentimes we don't see the justice in this because we refuse to admit that we are finite in our knowledge and cannot know what God knows. Sometimes from our perspective, God's acts seem reckless, but the Bible repeatedly affirms that they are just and they are trustworthy. We see here as well that, that God is praised as the Lord God Almighty. The Greek version of that Hebrew term, the Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth is his name as we sing in a mighty fortress is our God. And we see as well that he is sovereign over the ages and the nations. Not only are his works great and marvelous, not only are they just and true, but he acts in sovereignty and in goodness for his people. And then verse four, the song turns to the rhetorical question, who will not fear you or worship you? And this question comes with the assumed answer that everyone will bow the knee in worship to God. Earlier in Philippians 2 and Philippians 2, 5 through 11, we have this summary of the work of Jesus all the way from being in the throne room of God to, to taking on the form of flesh, the form of a servant, becoming humble unto death, and then being exalted again to the throne room of God. And at the end of that, we are told that it was done so that some knees will bow. No, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some will do so because they have, by the power of the Holy Spirit, embraced the good news of the gospel. Others will do it as they bow in judgment for the rebellion and wickedness, no longer able to deny the reality of their sin in the sight of a holy God. And then John goes on to call us to worship that holy God. One of the reasons we worship is not just because of what he has done, but because of who he is. For you alone are holy. You are set apart. You are separate. You are morally perfect. And for that, we worship God. Do you worship God for his moral perfection? I know we think about it. I know we, we talk about it. But do we consider that something for which he should be worshipped? It's hard for us to consider moral perfection because we are not morally pure. We have been made holy by the work of the Holy Spirit for those who have embraced the good news of the gospel, but we still struggle with sin. 
But God calls us to be holy as he is holy. And so you and I should worship him for his holiness. And then he goes on to affirm in this 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 praise that all nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Not everybody from all nations, but people from every nation will come and worship Jesus in a way that brings glory and honor to his righteous acts as they have been revealed. Everyone will bow the knee. But only some will worship in a way that brings peace and reconciliation with God. And once again, we worship God for what he has done in our lives and in the lives of his people and setting them apart to be victorious, setting them apart to be risen. How great and marvelous is Jesus is God's triune work of salvation. The cross points you and I to the justice of God's acts in history. We are called, you and I are called to begin this worship now. In Christ, the victory is yours today, and so the worship should be yours as well. Some of you may be singing the songs of victory that we sing today or that you sing in your home. Some of you may be singing those songs of God's victories with tears rolling down your face because of the hardship and struggle of living in this dark world. But take heart, you are victorious in Christ and you can offer him victorious praise. So we have seen God's people risen and victorious. We have seen them offering victorious worship. And in Psalm, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 11 through 13, we hear these words. Regarding the wilderness wanderings of the people of Israel, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you tempted be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up underneath it. Paul said that the account of the Exodus is given to us as a warning and as an encouragement. The Exodus warns that you and I are to flee and to avoid idolatry. The Exodus encourages us that we are victorious in Christ over those temptations, over those attacks. The life of the Christian, your life, is difficult in this world. There are political pressures to compromise our beliefs. There are economic pressures to compromise our beliefs. There are, there are relational pressures to compromise the gospel. Victory doesn't come by being successful in this world or winning elections or filling your basement with food and weapons so you can fight off the hordes of you know, figurative and literal zombies. Victory comes remaining faithful to God's truth and obedient to his word. I remember growing up when I was in high school, went to a Christian school, and at least once every year, maybe once every two years, they had the speaker that came in and said, Christians are dying today in Russia. Will you be willing to take a bullet for Jesus? Well, it's unlikely that either you or I will be asked to choose between Jesus and a bullet. But you will be asked to choose at times between Jesus and friends. You will be asked to choose between truth and family. 
you will be asked to choose between Jesus and comfort. In Christ, the choice is easy. What seems like defeat in clinging to the truth and clinging to the obedience, what seems like defeat in this fallen world is actually victory in Jesus. If you stand on the world's side, you will taste judgment. If you are firmly and confidently standing on Jesus' side of the sea, you are victorious in him. And because you are victorious in him, you have the hope of resurrection and you should be worshiping God whose acts are great, marvelous, just, true, and righteous. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, as we consider the victory that is ours in Jesus, fill us with worship. Fill us with songs that pro proclaim the goodness and the, the grandness and the astonishing nature of your acts. Help us to sing forth your justice, your truth, and your righteousness, knowing that you are the God who will see his people safely through. So that as we go through the wilderness, as we go through the Red Sea experience, we will stand victorious with you, having seen your conquering of the nations and having seen your defeat of the beast and his minions. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As we go this week, as we seek to walk faithfully and obediently in our work, in our family, or in our play, take this blessing upon you. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And remember that there are refreshments downstairs, and we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.